Welcome to 1% Wiser. Today I am speaking with Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a journalist and author of a number of books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. His new book, 4,000 Weeks, is about making the most of our radically finite lives in a world of impossible demands and relentless distraction. In this wide-ranging conversation, we of course talk a lot about productivity, but also about everything from ordering Korean food at 2am in New York, to why being a digital nomad is not all it's cracked up to be. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Oliver Bergman. Hi Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for asking me. So there's a huge amount I'd like to cover in this interview. I have pages and pages of questions, but obviously we'll have to see what we can get done in our limited time together. So I'll start with an easy question. Why do you think that we as a society are so obsessed with productivity? Yeah, it's one of those questions you can answer on five different levels and you could talk for hours about any one of those levels. I think a sort of obvious one is to say that there's something sort of very fundamental to capitalism, I think, just to go there right away, that um, focuses very heavily on sort of the instrumentalization of everything, of turning everything, time, resources, everything into into the service of future profit, accumulation of wealth. I think, so I think, you know, we are embroiled, sort of enmeshed in a system that is sort of fundamentally focused on productivity at the expense of other goals you could imagine for using time. But I also think that it's, I mean, I'm never very fond of the explanations that just sort of put it all at the door of the system with a capital S or the man, you know, because I think that there is something sort of totally fundamental to us as individuals that is older and more universal than than capitalism that wants to both a good part you know a part that i don't want to be arguing against that wants to create and wants to push boundaries and and sort of build things and at the same time a part of us which i'm more focused on in my book i guess that that wants to sort of deny the reality and the sort of scary reality of are being finite and having limited time. And so, you know, there's a, the, you can use productivity and an obsession with productivity as a kind of emotional avoidance, right? Because if you're sort of always on the cusp of becoming perfectly productive and able to do absolutely everything and anything, you sort of don't have to face the consequences of being, of being finite. I mean, you have to face them in reality, but you don't have to face them emotionally, I guess. What, what you describe yourself as a recovering productivity geek. Um, what is it about using our time that most productivity geeks misunderstand? Or to put it another way, what have you learned about productivity that changed you from being a productivity geek into a recovering productivity geek? I think the only distinction that I'm talking about there is about becoming, is primarily about becoming conscious of something that one is doing and why one is doing it. So I take productivity geekhood, it's not it's not got an official definition, but I take it to mean anybody who's sort of really fixated on trying to build the perfect system of efficiency and uh, organization that would enable them to implement every one of the ambitions that might pop into their heads or to dispatch every one of the obligations that they might uh, feel. And I think my sort of big 
change that sort of led up to being able to write this book, certainly. But my sort of big transition is just to seeing that why I was doing in the service of what, psychologically speaking, and that I was sort of, and I don't think I'm alone in this at all, that I was sort of focused on this ultimately mythical future moment of being totally in control, having my life sorted out, uh, being on top of everything. In the promise that when that came, you know, life wouldn't be intimidating and things wouldn't be anxiety inducing and uh, like scary decisions wouldn't be scary anymore. And I think that the the switch is is into seeing that that's why one is doing that. I don't think the desire to have life not be scary and vulnerable and unpredictable necessarily goes away. But once you see what it is going on there, you can at least sort of slightly lean into those feelings, to use an annoying phrase, rather than sort of spend your life in flight from them. And it's worth saying, you know, I think the reason I think we should not run away from these feelings is not just because you should face the truth on principle, but it's that like all the things that we end up doing to, to, to not face the truth make things worse and mean that we don't get around to doing the things we we want to do. Like I say, I think that's pretty universal among certain kind of person who's fixated on productivity. But I also think that the broader idea here about not liking how it feels to be sort of constrained by reality, I think that is pretty much completely universal, including among people who have no interest in yeah, absolutely techniques and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's, a, well, personally speaking, and not to turn it into a therapy session, but there's a there's a, a certain um, level of sort of anxiety about, you know, doing enough and trying to trying to get it all done. And did you did you ever feel like that? And have you sort of overcome these, this anxiety about trying to get it all done through this process of exploring this topic? Yeah, I mean, definitely the book was sort of self-therapy and the explorations that I've made in this in columns and elsewhere are, are all sort of self-therapy, right? So they are kind of trying to come up with the answers that I need to hear. I think that's pretty much endemic to any kind of writing in the advice genre. Sometimes the people writing it don't admit that, but I think it's always, <laughs> I think it's always true. And yeah, really, it's just, I, you know, one way of thinking about this is, is that like in these sort of very sort of slightly melodramatic philosophical terms is that it's all about trying to confront mortality and you you know you end up reading a bit too much Heidegger like I did for this book and and you start to sort of feel like it's all about staring death in the face which is such a sort of huge idea totally don't think I have you know conclusively or successfully stared my mortality in the face but there's this other version of it which is just the day-to-day mild discomfort that comes from not having that kind of control right so it's just like Knowing that while you spend two hours on a piece of writing, your email inbox is filling up with things that you're not going to get around to that day and just sort of and a thousand other examples. And that mild discomfort, I think it, I mean, tell me if you agree, but I feel like that does ultimately come from the fact that humans die, right? It comes from this very big deal thing. But dealing with it on a day-to-day basis does not need to be a matter of some sort of uh, wild-eyed confrontation with with death it's just about it's just about becoming a little bit more tolerant of a certain kind of discomfort and understanding that it's just inevitable and getting on with the things that you care about first instead of first of all trying to eradicate the the discomfort yeah no absolutely i think this 
you, you talked a little bit about this sort of confronting mortality and it's getting getting quite serious already in the first first five minutes of this <laughs> conversation <laughs> but i wonder yeah, I mean, go on, yeah. sorry. <clears throat> i was just going to ask you know you recount having a sort of a bit of an existential crisis when you discover that you know the title of your book four thousand weeks that being sort of the, the the flash in the pan of our lifespan and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about about that and how you kind of, if you came to peace with that, or how you how you have reached that uh, reached peace with that fact. Well, it's to- I think it's totally fascinating that it has this effect because it does on other people too. I have learned, uh, and you know, obviously, titling the book that way, I was hoping to be arresting and shocking. Not, I hoped, so alarming that people would like run away and not want to open or buy a book that had that that message. So, so far, it seems to be like I got the balance right, but we we shall see. There's something really strange about how arresting it is to think in terms of a lifespan in weeks, I think. Obviously, it's a little bit of a fiction because A, it's kind of rounded to a to a neat number. And B, of course, nobody has any idea how much time they are going to get. People get both much less and much more than 4,000 weeks of life. But there's something about a week that is very, very short in your data, in your sort of lived experience, right? You know, you don't, a week flashes by, like, where did the week go? It's totally normal experience, a bit like a day. But on the other hand, 4,000 just isn't enough of something like that to, it doesn't feel like it's anywhere near enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, The number of days you get in a life is at least a very large number. And the number of years you get is not many, but but at least a year goes on for a long time. So in the, the weeks seem to sort of really press the point. And yeah, I was sort of terrified. And then I started, as I say in the book, I started like randomly asking my friends, like, don't do any mental arithmetic. Just tell me, how many weeks do you think the average human lifespan is? And people will come up with like, they say 150,000, things like this, which if you don't do the math at all, doesn't sound wildly absurd, but it is, of course, wildly absurd. And yeah, like twice that is the... 310,000 weeks is the duration of all human civilization. So I just think there's something very powerful about the the number, but obviously the real point is just the finitude, right? It's the finiteness, the fact that there is a hard ending and that we don't have all the time in the world. I think that's the important part that the sort of conclusions follow from. It's nothing to do with the specific mm. number. If- if we could increase human life by 200 years or or to 1,000 years, should we do it? Or would that make life somehow less meaningful? It's a really interesting question on that scale, because occasionally people ask this question, you know, in the context of various Silicon Valley, hyper-wealthy eccentrics who may, be man- who may be working on these things. And they talk about like solving death, which implies eternal life if taken literally. Um, all these life extension things would create other problems of their own, I suspect, on a societal level that we haven't fully confronted. But I mean, you know, if you that sort of relatively modest extension of just like doubling human lifespan or something like that, it's very hard. I mean, it sounds absurd to call it modest. Obviously, it'd be, it'd be a sort of un- unprecedented breakthrough. But I think, um, you know, on the one hand, the finiteness would remain. And I'm sure we would ultimately be as desperate to avoid the confrontation with that finiteness on the other hand you would have more time i i don't think from how i argue in the book and from how the people the philosophers that i've sort of explored on this i don't think that um the real problem with eternal life is when it goes on forever <laughs> and this is an argument that's been made against sort of certain kinds of religious conception of 
eternal life, right? And then Martin Hagland in his really interesting book, This Life, which came out a couple of years ago and that I mentioned in, in mine, makes this point that like nothing would ever be at stake. If you lived forever in a, in a literal sense, nothing would ever be at stake because there'd be no reason to use any given day for anything. It would just be a sort of hellishly meaningless existence. But that clearly wouldn't be the case if we could live 200 years. So I'm not sure I'm against, you know, making it so that we can have 8,000 8, weeks. I don't think it would solve any of our problems because we'd just reconfigure all our ambitions to exceed the new the new limit. But well, have, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Maybe We'd have the maybe same problems more. just over a, over a longer time period, perhaps. Yes. And yeah. presumably some overpopulation-related issues as well. Right? Presumably, even more so than we have we have at the moment. <laughs> Bringing things down to a slightly more terrestrial level. If you were in charge of a corporate law firm or other or in a situation where you were otherwise responsible for the kind of output and productivity of knowledge workers what would you do differently to the way that things are currently done wow it's a good question and the first thing i want to say is that i don't think it's a given as you often feel that it is assumed in conversations around this kind of topic i don't feel like it's necessarily a given that there is a that there's an answer here that you know that that makes things much better for the employees while also being excellent for the bottom line of the corporation. It may be that these things are in a sort of real conflict. And that so if I was feeling virtuous, I'd have to do things that would sort of cause the law firm to suffer in some way. That said, I think there's two things that really spring to mind when I look at how people I know are work- and people I'm aware of, you know, companies I'm aware of are working that, that where this goes wrong. The first one is is just in terms of the, the way in which work is organized and the number of hours that are given to kind of deeply focused work. Cal Newport, who I'm sure you're well aware of, has written really eloquently on the way that like interrupt-driven workplaces are incredibly useless for any kind of work that, that benefits from deep reflection. And my twist or the thing I've tried to add to that discussion is to say that like all... Uh, and I'm not the only person to do that either, but is that all the evidence from many, many people in history, but also from sort of more rigorously organized studies, is that you can't really do more than three or four hours of that in the course of a 24-hour period, and that you soon enter the area of diminishing returns or even uh, negative returns if if you keep pushing beyond that with that kind of deep work. So one thing is to sort of be very clear about the boundaries between deep and shallow work if you can. That's something I associate with Newport, Cal Newport especially, but then also to be really quite um, modest in the in the goals for those for the amount of time that's given to that kind of work, precisely so that it becomes a sustainable thing that people can put in day after day after day. And then I guess the whole other part of this that comes up in a bit more detail in the in the book is to do specifically in the world of law, though it has similar things operate elsewhere is this kind of idea of the billable hour the idea of thinking in specific in in like making the time and money connection so so close that it has this incredibly sort of corrosive effect as various people have argued on the on the souls of the people doing it that that every it becomes very difficult to value time for anything other than whether it's you know been successfully sold to a client now i don't know quite enough about law as it functions maybe you know more to to say this but the first problem with the billable hour seems very obvious to me that it's just a huge disincentive towards doing anything in the shortest time uh 
possible because there's a strong incentive to bill the client for as many hours as you think you can get away with. But the other problem with billable hours, right, is simply that, yeah, you, you come to think of an hour as valuable to the extent that it is billable. And that, I think, you know, has a sort of really deleterious effect on how you think about your leisure time or time of your family or just, you know, even just other parts of the job that can't be translated into that. So I guess I would try to get rid of that. Maybe people already are getting rid of that in various corners of law. I suspect they are. Yeah. And, and even beyond beyond law, I mean, if we think about knowledge work more generally, there's a sort of, or at least or, or work in general, we, there's, there's many people who are still in this, or, or most of us are still in the kind of nine to five, almost factory output type of mode. But then there's actually, our output as knowledge workers is very much usually unrelated to the number of hours necessarily that are put in. But somehow I don't think that managers would look kindly on kind of workers taking long walks in the park or things like this as as being productive activities. And yet we have many of our kind of insights i'm sure you would you would agree in, in the shower or going for a walk or something like that so i'm uh, yeah yeah i mean you hope that those kind of results can be measured somehow right i mean if, mm. it, if, it, if we're right here that this leads to better outcomes then it ought to be possible to see those better outcomes and to not sort of fixate on how they look like working but yeah i guess that's a, an ongoing challenge yeah yeah i mean c- computers in particular seem like fairly terrible places to do deep thinking in general so I, and just coming on to kind of technology i wonder what you think technology is doing to our expectations of productivity is it kind of changing the way we we think about it in unhealthy ways or or do you see it do you see it differently I'll put it another way. Why why does better technology not result in increased leisure time? Oh, well, on the the time use front when it comes to technology, yeah, right. There is this kind of extremely bizarre seeming phenomenon whereby technology that saves us time doesn't result in people feeling more peaceful with regard to time. It's actually, you know, more frustrating to wait for food to cook in a microwave or to wait for a web page that's slow loading to finally load than it is to wait for food in the oven or, or wait for things to arrive in the regular, in the snail mail. One of the arguments that I, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here, right? So one thing is that, that, that all sorts of technologies make it a lot easier to, to do a lot of stuff more efficiently. And then you get all the problems that come with efficiency, namely that like, more efficient systems, if left unchecked, just attract more and more work. So the natural tendency, now that we can answer as many emails as we can answer in a day, instead of how long it would have taken to write individual letters, the natural tendency of the system, the pressures from outside and the pressures from inside us, is to take on more and more and more work or to receive more and more and more emails. So so in that sense, you're just sort of reducing the friction with which people can get overwhelmed and thus yeah not 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 relieving their overwhelm and then i guess also there is this kind of quite deep psychological thing going on where the faster we're able to do things like cook food in a microwave and you know travel places in cars instead of horses and carts or whatever the the the, clo- the more you can do that the cl- the nearer it feels like you've got to this position of like exerting total dominance over your time and and capacity to sort of do everything exactly on the schedule that you want and so the more frustrating it is that you still can't right so that last hour uh, sixty seconds between 
having food ready instantly and and not is is much more infuriating somehow than than if it just has to you know than if you're in a culture where you would just accept that it has to take two hours before it's before it's ready so i think both of those things are going on probably your book is full of really really interesting ideas and and some that really challenge the way we think about things one is this idea of settling which seems quite antithetical to our current culture but you make a very compelling and and i think rarely heard case that it's necessary and even even a good thing so why is settling however you want to define it something we should embrace rather than run away from or avoid well there's a few concepts in the book that's one of them and then the other one is another one is procrastination where i feel like if you really come up with a rigorous definition of them you start to see that they are just an inevitable part of being a limited human and therefore thinking that they're bad and should be escaped as opposed to that you should try to do them in a wise way is is a sort of you're on a hiding to nothing and in the case of settling that would just be to say you know if you define settling in a relationship or a career or anything else as as sort of accepting some imperfections or some limits in order to get some of what you desire rather than holding out for the perfect the, the 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 perfect person or the perfect job well that's just an inevitability of having finite time and being finite and everybody being imperfect and every job being one job and not not having the good bits of every single job mixed up in it like any decision to do anything with your time is a decision to not do a lot of other things and 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 so settling sort of built in and equally if you were to spend your whole life keeping your options open never quite committing to any person or thing that's a kind of settling too because you're choosing the feeling of freedom of decision making over all the benefits you might be getting but are missing out on because you're because you're holding back so once you see then that, that this is for any sort of rigorous definition of settling it's just sort of built in yeah, then the question becomes like how to do it best. And of course, you know, that none of this is, means there aren't better and worse jobs and people and places. It just means that you're sort of facing the reality of the situation in a new way. That means you don't have to spend your time like panicking about the fact that you're settling per se because you're going to be doing that whatever yeah. the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting concept. Another one is this idea of, of synchronized time. And I wonder, should we revive or otherwise reinvigorate the Sabbath? I think we should try. I mean, I'm not this some of these more collective aspects of, of the stuff I explore in the book do run into this question of like, okay, so how do you propose to go about doing that? I think the one of the important points I try to make about the idea of the Sabbath in the book is not just something that I think has become quite well thought about in recent years, which is the idea that even secular people ought to be taking a day a week to not be connected to their devices or to not be on email or to not be working, whatever it might be. But also that it really mattered historically that it was the same day for everybody, or at least for a lot of people. There was this sort of synchronicity, synchrony rather, um, in how people were living their lives so that you could expect that if you went calling on your neighbours at that day of the week they'd be in and be and be in a headspace where they wanted to talk and and be convivial and uh, or you know 
religious services at the simplest level they just have to be at a certain time right that you don't get to choose as an individual otherwise they can't happen as as what they are so yeah i think i mean what i'm drawing attention to here i hope is just this i this way that we have become so sort of out of sync with each other this is true at the sort of bottom of the socioeconomic ladder where people are working sort of unpredictable shifts sort of bad contracts that bring them in to work dependent on when an algorithm decides they need to come into work but it's also true of like people like me who have some freedom over their schedules and you know get to decide when they do things like you're never free at the same time as your friends because they're all doing the same with their schedules and so there's this kind of lack of lack of fit so anything that we can do i'm not saying i have a ton of ideas right now but let, let anything we can do to sort of sync up our schedules a bit is likely to be a good thing and that's as simple as i mean okay one obvious thing is like is join a club or organization because that those things meet and they have to meet at a certain time and you know therefore by definition you're going to be gathered with a bunch of other people at the same time yeah what did you learn about patients living in new york well the thing that uh, you get i love new york and i and then you know it, it, it's a huge mixture of wonderful things and sort of annoying things and then you sort of get used to the annoying things and you even sort of take a perverse pride in living in a place with the annoying things but the one thing that never we're we're in yorkshire now for a year but but you know still basically very connected to to new york city the one thing i never stopped being massively irritating irritated by is honking cars drivers just honking their horns for just all the time for no reason like there's absolutely no safety reason for sure and then also not even to speed up the traffic because it just doesn't work and what they're mainly doing as i suggest in the book anyway is just sort of issuing an existential howl against the fact that they want reality to be moving at a different speed than it is but as any good therapist would tell you if you find something incredibly irritating in somebody else it's probably touching something in in you and i reluctantly concede that possibly what i find irritating about the impatient motorists is that they're sort of partly drawing attention to my own impatience and remaining impatience and i think that you know new york is a good example of that right fast moving cities where you can get a lot of things on a whim it's not actually true at least part of brooklyn where we live that you can order korean food at two o'clock in the morning I guarantee every restaurant in the neighborhood closes at like half past 10. But there is still a lot of convenience. There's a lot of speed. You can, you can go and experience cuisines or art forms or meet up with fascinating people very, very easily and quickly compared to a lot of places. So you, again, you get this feeling of like, I'm very nearly in the driver's seat of life, right? Because, you know, I can do all of this. I can eat like how I want to eat. I can get there in that... But of course, the effect of that then is that all the ways in which you aren't yet the god of your time, because you never will be, are just much more infuriating. And, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but already here in the North York Moors, where we're living for the moment, life certainly moves at a sort of slower pace, but also there is all sorts of, you know, I just do have to drive to a neighboring town if I want to buy groceries. It's just totally baked into the situation. And you just sort of don't question it, right? So the fact that, 
something has been taken away from me, which is the ability to have a thought about an ingredient for a meal and go and buy it within 120 seconds of having the thought. And I'm apparently less annoyed by that than than when it did take 120 seconds, but not zero seconds. You know, it's like, it's, it's so odd. And I don't, I really don't think it's just me being very odd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, you haven't had any, had any luck buying Korean food at 2am in, in North Yorkshire. No, I mean, you know, you don't try and, and it doesn't, it's not on the agenda. And therefore the fact that it's the fact that that restaurant, you know, in New York would have closed at 10pm and you thought it was supposed to be open all night because, Hey, this is New York. It's like, it doesn't arise, no. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any practical tips on how we can both remain present in our lives and also kind of plan and work towards future goals kind of effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a, a super neat solution to any of this, but I write in the book about, you know, I think the problem where many of us, certainly those of us like me who are sort of compulsive planners, at least by our sort of family heritage, where we go wrong is, not planning it's not you know coming up with a rough shape for the day or the week or the month it's seeing that as some kind of effort to exert control over the future that you in fact can't exert because reality gets in the way and then being constantly annoyed or anxious about the lack of fit between what how you want things to go and how they they seem to be going. The meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, has this wonderful line that we forget that a plan is just a thought, right? That it's like, it's in the present. It's a statement of your intentions. It's totally useful as a way to help you make decisions. It's great to have a plan for the day when it's like 2.15 p.m. and you the question arises, what should I do now? Like, it's brilliant if you can consult a sort of thought through plan. And obviously, to do things like talk to other people for podcasts, you need to plan in certain ways. But you can do that, I think, without like gripping hold of the plan as, as a way you're trying to make, make reality go. Um, the idea of just sort of being present in the moment is, while a very sort of alluring one, I think is, you know, is equally challenging because you can get just as instrumental about trying to be like, okay, I've got to really enjoy the moment and, you know, appreciate life's smaller pleasures as you can be about, you know, much more sort of traditional kinds of instrumental focus and yeah i think there it's really just a question the place where all this joins is just to see that like you always are only in the moment like that's not that's not a thing to try to do that's just a fact about everything including all your anxious thoughts and compulsive planning it's all just happening now and we're all sort of completely out in the dark about what's going to happen in the next moment and totally vulnerable to events you know and it's kind of scary but on the other hand remembering that it's completely inescapable that there's nothing you can do about that situation is in the nature of time you know i do think there's quite a lot of relief in that as well yeah just a couple more questions this idea of being a digital nomad is quite popular at the moment is this one of those things that everyone should try once to realize that it's not really as great as it as it makes as it's made out to be <laughs> You know, there's plenty of things I write about in this book where I wonder, like, do you have to go through making these mistakes before you can understand the wisdom of it? I mean, I have, I would not say I've ever been a digital nomad, really, but I have certainly headed off on sort of multi-week trips, I guess. Not, not, no, digital nomads tend to do it for as a lifestyle, but, you know, 
where your idea is you're going to keep working, but you're going to be wherever you want to be. And the work you do can be done from anywhere. So you have this total control over your time. And as they then discover and have some have written about what you discover is that like, you're really lonely a lot of the time because you've sort of uprooted yourself from the specific contexts in which most of us are embedded most of the time and that really give a shape to your life. And again, just to contrast it with where we are here, like I've got good friends and family in, in York an hour's drive away, but right here, I've been here a few weeks, don't really know anybody. And yet even the very tenuous connections that one makes people you nod to the your kids school teacher neighbors who you say hello to uh, you know even that level of familiarity and rhythm clearly means a lot and and counters this kind of idea of being totally atomized and solitary whereas being a digital nomad is sort of deliberately choosing the the most atomized existence possible whether you have to try it that i mean there's a really interesting question here uh, i think about how many of these things you sort of have to experience mm. downsides of for it, yourself but yeah i've i've previously uh, sort of previously i used to i suppose idolize that uh, type of lifestyle until i tried it and i can completely relate to the feelings of loneliness and and lack of um connection that you you talked about because it's it's, it is not all it's cracked up to be. Oliver, we're coming to the end of our, our time together. So just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I want to ask you one last question. What is something, and I uh, probably there's many things, but what is something that you changed your mind about in the course of writing this book? That's a really interesting question to me because I definitely changed in the course of writing this book. You know, I sort of had to be, I was discovering what I, believed I guess uh, as I wrote and so I feel like I changed as a person in various ways but expressing it in the context of sort of belief change or changing I mean that's a really that that is a, a question that I mean I'm sure I did change a whole lot of my beliefs as I was changing my behavior and my practices but I mean I suppose One thing that I would, this is maybe a little bit precise and technical, but bear with me. I think I'd sort of embraced a kind of slightly distorted pseudo version of the kind of Western Buddhism that's very popular these days and would have thought at the beginning that, you know, perhaps the perfect state to be in, not one that I had ever attained or would hope to, had any hopes of attaining, but that you might want to be in would be again, to be completely um, sort of totally present in this kind of desireless way to sort of transcend the ego, all these things that you read about in the in the spirituality books and, and not sort of want anything out of life and to be completely happy with exactly, that seems like a good attitude to take toward time. But I think that what really emerged from writing this book is actually more a way of, 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 relate, of keeping your, you know, seeing that your natural sort of desires, your desire to for self-improvement, your desire to change your circumstances, all this stuff, like these are things you have to sort of try to accept as well, I think probably. And, uh, and that it would be a kind of denial of your limitations to try to transcend those 
as well. So I think a, a big part of this book is fi- is about sort of finding ways to relate to the feelings of discomfort, of wanting things to be different than they are, of being impatient, angry, whatever, relating to them in a more healthy way, I guess, rather than in a rather than trying to sort of get rid of them. Which suddenly makes it sound a lot more like the last book I wrote. But anyway, that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation. That's a, a conversation for another day. <laughs> well, Oliver, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time today. I will, of course, link to your book. I strongly recommend people read it. It's it's really really good. It's it's there's a lot of really interesting ideas and and really interesting um, thoughts in there. So it's a, a real gift to the world. And and thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did and you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Otherwise, have a wonderful day wherever you are, and I'll see you next time.